I find when you put professional property management in the middle, now both parties have a resource to get answers to their questions and they get treated fairly. So investors, they're making a return now because great decisions are being made on their properties. Tenants are hopefully, I know they are at one focus, being treated legally. They're not being taken advantage of. They're having greater housing security, housing affordability, housing reliability. And that is good for communities. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Wella, and today I'm talking to Jen Rulins. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jordan. Happy to be here. Jen, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into property management. I got into property management because out of undergrad, I went to a state school in Pennsylvania, got a marketing degree, and I was recruited by two senior marketing people at Pennsylvania State Government to do a marketing company. Had a wonderful nine months, and then it failed. <laughs> and I was 21, and I lived in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I needed a job, and I could always sell things. And I got a job leasing apartments at a 300-unit apartment community. And I always said, I didn't know anything about apartments. I'm from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And um, a good way to understand what that means is there were some garden-style apartments in our town, and I remember asking my mom at about like 10 or 11 years old, what are those? You know, because everybody had farms and houses. And she goes, oh, those are apartments. That's where divorced people live. Oh, wow. And What's some baggage. I, it, 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 <laughs> but that's really like, I didn't understand apartments. I, nobody I knew rented or anything like that. So I'm at 21. It was a 300 unit new apartment community and it was 88% occupied. And within 10 months, I had it at 100%. And they said, good news, you get to be the manager now. So you were the leasing agent for a I was the leasing agent for those 10 months. And so that's how I got into it. And I really, from that point on, have found a love for it. I love the discipline of it. I love the risk analysis. And yeah, I've been man- I did large scale, large apartment communities for about eight years. Housing crisis hit. I did business school. So I got an MBA at Penn State and met my husband. And I landed in North Central Pennsylvania where there are no apartment communities. And that's when I started One Focus Property Management, serving the small investor and with with a bigger company mentality, more discipline. So you said you've always been able to sell things, which is an incredible backstop. Selling will always provide you an income, will always provide opportunity. Property management is more than just sales. It's also the operational component. How do you relate to, in terms of your personal time and attention, the sales and marketing growth side versus the operational side of the business? I love them both. I'm more effective at sales. So I love the intellectual challenge of operations. I love efficiencies. I love data. I love process. But that is not my sweet spot. I, I love it. I appreciate it. I don't do that instinctually instinctually really well. Um, what I do really well is set vision. So I can see where we are. I can see what's possible. And that's the role I serve now in my company is as visionary, which has a big role in marketing and sales, but it is also on setting targets for our operations and the standard I want to perform our services to. And there's a lot that we do that's unique related to how well we execute. That's That's really unusual. Tell me more about that vision. Tell me more about the value prop for clients in your market. What is something that may be distinct to your company as opposed to other competitors? Yeah. What's distinct to our company is that we are experienced professionals with a very deep knowledge and acumen in property management. And their other options are truly realtors who are sidelining or maybe 
um, successful personal investors who are now doing this for friends. And we come to it with a much more, um, I always call it disciplined property management and with a risk awareness. We don't talk about bad tenants. We don't talk about um, deferred maintenance in the way some people do. We talk about it as risk. Mm -hmm. How does that provide risk to your return? And we talk about it in terms of risk and return. And I always say when you hire us, yeah, your return takes a little bit of a hit. We cost some money. But your risk dramatically drops. And when your risk and return aren't correlated, abnormal earnings, you know, that you have an arbitrage opportunity. And I feel like when you hire an amazing property manager who's good at the fundamentals of leasing, maintaining, managing risk on your rental property, you get abnormal returns because you've reduced your risk so much and only your return by a small amount. Risk is something that's incredibly poorly understood across the board. It's amorphous. It's invisible. It's something that's not happening. So how exactly do you optimize for it? The idea of a risk-adjusted return is the backbone of value investing. Rule number one, according to Warren Buffett, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't lose money. The mm -hmm. only way to do that is to think hard and seriously about managing risk to stay in your circle of competence and a bunch of other concepts we don't have to cover now. But when you think about having that conversation with investor clients, with accidental landlord clients, what are some of the key levers that you highlight as being the variables that you're attempting to control to provide outsized returns? There's a lot of levers you can pull in this business to manage for risk, but the two big ones are your tenant approval decision and your tenant renewal decision. Those are the two big ones that you have entire control over and really do um, determine how the asset's going to go. So when I think about risk, I think about it in three buckets. So you have market risk, right? What's unemployment, interest rates, what's going on? Well, as a, an investor with some houses, you just need to be aware of that, right? You're not going to do something different today because a news article came out about job rates. All right. Then you have asset risk, right? Is the roof going to blow off? Is the boiler no good and going to die in a month? Okay. You get insurance and you do preventive maintenance. Okay. You can manage that risk. The third risk is tenant risk. This is the one that's going to cost you the most and you have entire control over. You put them in the home. You put them in the home. So when when I make a leasing decision and I run my application criteria, that is extending a credit risk to somebody. And so we get a choice over that, over who we rent to and on what terms, and we get a choice on who we renew to and on what terms. You have a lot of other decisions, but those are the big ones. And I think if you can focus and get really good at those, you can take a lot of the, the problems off the table. Let's talk about the delta that exists between a raw actuarial model that is simply solving for probabilities as opposed to a model that may be uh, managed more by the regulation that takes place in our industry. How much regulation are you seeing in your industry? What are your thoughts and opinions about how future tenant-friendly regulation may reduce the ability to make the highest quality uh, tenant placement decision on behalf of the owner? Well, I talk a lot about this because I find that at least clients in my market <clears throat> struggle with fair housing, just struggle with any kind of regulation that tells them what they should do, which again, they're just trying to make risk decisions. They're not bigots. They're trying to make a risk decision with something that's very important to them. So um, what's going on in my market, we're actually pretty reasonable. We're in North Central Pennsylvania. Philadelphia is a different kind of market, um, but we're all watching what's happening on the West Coast. We're not mm -hmm. silly. I see housing affordability as a top three platform issue in the next presidential election. I think it's going to push fair housing and you know um, different protected classes 
It's going to hurt short-term rentals. It's going to be it's going to be a lot of things. Um, I think property management does well in all of that. So speaking about the difference between like the actuarial, you know, probability related models, and then like what we actually see and how it works, I always say when it comes to like these restrictions, these regulations <clears throat> on how we make our risk decisions. You know, there's a spectrum, right? From nothing to all of them. We can agree that either end of the spectrum is probably bad. And I think somewhere in the middle where I believe Pennsylvania is now is good. The amount of fair housing regulations are really, they should be called better rental business regulations, right? Helping, forcing you to make better decisions. And when I talk about fair housing, I go, listen, you can have a negative attitude about this, or you can do what I do and go, this is actually just a discipline that helps me make better decisions. Because the the tenant's <clears throat> membership in a protected class is not an effective determinant of their performance as a tenant. What is, is their credit score, their income, their criminal history, and their landlord history. That's about it. And, and if you can break it down and make it simple, some people can get it, some people can't. But as a company, what's great is, you know, we're property managers. We understand that for our clients. And Generally, they're not too interested in having a very long conversation about it. At least not with me. I'm very <laughs> persuasive <laughs> to do it our way. Yeah. How much opportunity is left on the table with the typical credit, credit screening model that is applied? What additional factors or what additional nuance on how those factors could be viewed? Do you think it could provide more yield relative to the mean of the quality of tenant screening that's typically done in our industry? I hear your question, but I don't think it's a different data point. I think it's the discipline in how we do it. So having started as a leasing agent in multifamily, and I, you know, I'm so fortunate in that first year I probably processed, I don't know, 200 applications. Like I got good at it really quickly. Um, what's different about what's typically done and the way I believe it should be done is the discipline. And so we, several years ago, um, realized I couldn't approve every tenant application anymore because that kind of was the deal. Like I had a, a first round and then I was a second round and we didn't break it down into quantifiable scores. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is it. This isn't scalable. I can't review every tenant application. We came up with like a mathematical scoring system and, and it works. It works great. And we've finessed it over the years. Um, but that discipline of being able to take any situation that comes in, gig worker, W-2 worker, 1099 worker, we have a way to figure out their income, to figure out a rent-to-income ratio that, you know, that is the basis we make our decisions on. Where I think a lot of landlords, uh, either DIY landlords or even, even property managers struggle is not knowing how to take all those tremendously different situations that exist with people and get them into the formula. It's something that mortgage underwriters do all the time. And it's just a discipline that I think we could do better. And if we did better at discussing it, standardizing it, figuring out the conventions to do it with, and then doing it consistently as a business, you'll have tremendous, tremendous results. I know this because we get really great results with our tenant selection to the point where we're um, offering the only that I'm aware of self-funded full tenant assurance guarantee in the industry. So our clients can sign up for the gold plan and we will cover any loss to tenant up to 20 grand. So um, damages, unpaid rent, balance of lease, whatever it is, I'll cover it. Um, and I can afford to do that because the delta between what it costs me in bad debt loss and the amount that I charge is so significant. It costs me so little and it's worth so much more to my client. So it works really well for us. And that's something that we've been doing now for a couple of years. Good. I was going to ask that. So enough time has elapsed to feel like that it's, it's Oh yeah. The first year was a little nerve wracking because everybody, you know, and, and the story of how this came up was, you know, it was 
2020, we had um, made the decision based on the benchmarks that were put out that we weren't profitable enough and something we knew, but we we understood that now when we understood some targets, we wanted to move our our um, revenue per door up. And we knew we couldn't do it all from landlords. So we did some tenant-based stuff and vendor-based stuff. But for the clients, we wanted to introduce a tiered structure. And I'm so principled, I will not do half of property management. Like there's no budget like low package with me. I have to do the full deal or I'm not happy. So I had the full deal and then I wanted to do something a little bit more inclusive that would really protect the client in a way they can't get anywhere else. And a lot of people are doing that with these insurance packages that you can buy on behalf of your client, put it on. And I called them and they were not um, signing up a lot of people at that point because it was May 2020. (laughs) And um, they also weren't loving my market. I have lower than the average rents. Um, They're not bad properties, but my average rent's like $800 a month. Um, They didn't like all the zip codes. And I thought, well, I don't want to provide something that not everybody in my market area can have. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to dig into my own data and find out if I did this, how much would it cost me? And that's when my eyes got opened. And I had to run the data a lot to be comfortable with the fact that for years, we were placing a very low percentage of our tenant receivables into bad debt collections. And I went, oh, so if I decided to offer this, it would cost me this. And I believe it's worth this bigger number. And that's gone really, really well. Um, Clients love it. It's uh, a great way to take take the pressure off for them, and it doesn't. And because we have these great practices, we're still knock wood, <laughs> you know, um, we're doing well with it. We're we're making money. We're keeping clients happy, and the challenge is just as we grow, keeping that same discipline throughout the whole organization. You saw some opportunity. You took advantage of it, Jen. In your opinion, what is the vested interest that residential property manager, managers should have in affordable housing? And I don't mean the asset class, but I just may, mean quality places for people to live? Well, what is the vested interest for us in affordable housing? Hmm. That's an interesting question that I'm thinking of. I mean, I think about when I think about the value that property managers bring in my experience, in my world, I always say this. I go, tenants and landlords are like cats and dogs, right? At least if you read media or anything, they hate each other, Mm -hmm. right? You ask a landlord, what do you think of a tenant? And they go, oh, the tenant is you know, lazy, they should own a home. If they had their life together, they'd own a home. They destroy property value. They don't care. You ask a tenant, what do you think about a landlord? Oh, they're greedy. They step over their mother for a dollar. They're just terrible people who don't want to do anything, right, to help me. Greedy. The truth is, that is not true about either of these parties. Mm -hmm. I work every day with incredible tenants and incredible landlords. And when I say, for the most part, our tenants are amazing. They're not manipulative or destructive. They they just want good quality housing. They want to be treated well, and they're happy to, to meet their end of the bargain. And same thing with landlords. And we saw that during COVID. My phone was ringing off the hook with landlords going, how can I help my tenants? How can I help them? I said, why don't you let us handle that? Don't start sending gift cards and everything just yet. Let's just see what they need and meet them where they need. So when you have a professional property manager in the middle of this landlord-tenant relationship where I go, they don't trust each other because they have a lot at stake and neither one really knows what to do. They really don't. Does the landlord know what to do when the tenant calls and says, I just got fired from my job and I need to move you know, 10 states away and I'm breaking my lease? The landlord's really confused at that point. They know they have a lot at stake and they don't know what to do. So there's a lot at stake. They don't know what they're doing. I find when you put professional property management in the middle, now both parties have a resource 
to get answers to their questions, and they get treated fairly. So investors, they're making a return now because great decisions are being made on their properties. Tenants are hopefully, I know they are at one focus, being treated legally. They're not being taken advantage of. They're having greater housing security, housing affordability, housing reliability. And that is good for communities. When I think about my role, um, well, one focuses role in our market, I see us doing that. I see us improving the quality of housing, improving the housing that's available. Because if investors can get positive returns, they will buy these blighted properties and improve them. I do it with them every day. And now there's new, better housing units on the market ready to to house families securely. And tenants aren't getting treated. You know, at least in our market, there's a lot of self-managing landlords. We're probably about the only property manager. And I hear a lot from from potential clients and people talking about their practices. And I tell them, it's incredibly illegal what you're doing. You're treating people unfairly. And again, they're just trying to make risk decisions. They're just a person who's lived a life, who's taken in this data, and this is the response they have is, this is how I'm going to handle this risk. If they knew a better way, they would do it. <laughs> they really would. They want better results. I'm going to ask you a big question that nobody has the answer to, okay. but what are your thoughts and sensibilities around inventory and supply? When you mentioned affordable housing earlier, that's really what I was getting oh. at. And as a platform issue, solutions will be proposed. We'll see about the quality, but- Ultimately, you can look at this in one of two ways. Supply is constrained, rents go up, it's a fee-based model. There's that side of it. But then there's the side of it of the anti-landlord sentiment that is getting fomented and stirred up. When you think about macro solutions to this issue and how it impacts property managers, what comes to mind for you? Well, I think property managers are one of many solutions to this housing availability problems. So what we're like 5 million housing units short, not one thing's going to solve it. We can't build our way out of it. We can't rehab our way out of it. Um, we can't strike out short-term rentals and get our way out of it. Um, we can't do just one thing. And where property managers are so great is that they're really great boots on the ground, managing properties and getting housing units available. So we, I know of property managers who are doing huge in the build to rent space, which is great because then these builders, if they're working with property managers from the beginning, I think have a much better shot at making something that works. But in my community where we don't have new housing construction for a lot of reasons, but we have a lot of old blighted properties, perfect opportunity for property managers who have investors who have tenants and who have maintenance and construction services. I have all the ingredients to make houses nice and have people living in them paying market rents. And so I think there's, it's going to be a huge multi-pronged approach. I I just know enough to be aware. I got to tell you, I tell everybody I meet, I think housing is going to be a top three platform issue in 2024. I think that puts a, sh a spotlight on our industry. I hope we as property managers stand up in that industry and speak well about what we're doing because the industry is dominated by realtors. Realtors get the microphone 99% of the time. And um, at the risk of speaking too strongly, I'm not usually impressed. <laughs> I'm not impressed with the messages that our realtor friends are spreading. They are not long-term strategy people. They're short-term people. And I'm a buy and hold investor and I have a long-term vision. And I think this issue needs a long-term vision, not short-term pushing, pushing home ownership up or rents down. No, we need a long-term vision for how this industry is going to work. And I think the industry needs a lot of adjustments. You know, we've seen Scott Brady talked um, at our conference here yesterday and he was talking about commission compression. And that's something I absolutely see happening. I don't think 
the MLS and Cobroke and all of that's going to be working that way for much longer. And if realtors have the microphone while that's going on and things like that, the message is going to get confuddled, right? The message is going to get bamboozled. And we should be talking more about making investment possible for regular people because institutional investors aren't going to get us out of this either. What is it? 60% of the rentals is it? Yeah. Our, our DIY or, you know, small mom and pop people. So those are the people we need to be equipping. And what just happened with COVID does not show that our government has those people in mind. I'm hearing a stump speech here. Rulings 2024. <laughs> no, I just, I, that's a horrible job. I, uh, <laughs> you think property management's a hard job. Politics is terrible, but no, I, 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 um, yeah, I get really upset about a lack of long-term vision and understanding and nobody comes asking, you know, in my town in Williamsport, they passed in 2013, a terribly racist, um, rental ordinance. And uh, I won't get into it, but it's still on the books. I've had calls from NAACP saying, get a group of well-spoken landlords together. We've got you on a watch list and we're here to support you. That kind of stuff is happening in small communities across the country. And it's not helping the issue. It's not helping housing affordability, security. It's old, bad ideas. Let's zoom back into your company and specifically talk mm -hmm. about your leadership and your evolution as an entrepreneur. You mentioned that vignette or anecdote about you being a little girl and being next to some houses. What in your background do you think disposed you to become an entrepreneur? Entrepreneurial ancestors. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, my, my mom's family were farmers, so that's very entrepreneurial. My mom and dad were both entrepreneurial. Um, my dad had different kinds of businesses and my mom owned a daycare growing up. We were like in her business literally all day. Um, and yeah, the idea of working for other people has never really appealed to me. <laughs> it, it, um, I've always had my own vision and things I wanted to do. And at this point, I've been doing it so long, we always joke that I'm unemployable. I, I, I do fall back on that. I could always sell, right? Like if the worst thing happened, the worst thing happened, I could go to some town and like waitress, right? I'd make a killing. But so, so why am I entrepreneurial? Probably because of my parents and the way I was raised and that you bet on you. And luckily, I, I think I'm worth betting on. <laughs> What's interesting to me about that anecdote, it's, it's deeply relatable in the sense that what was modeled for me by my stepfather in particular was the Father. basis of my career. Oh, your stepfather. My stepdad. Oh. Yeah. So my stepdad provided me a option on the menu of life choices and I picked it. And had it not been on the menu, I likely wouldn't have picked it. But because it was there, it was fantastic. And I, I just, it was so obvious to me that I wanted to do that. Modeling, proximity, permission yeah. is a significant factor for me. As you think about your own, evolution in who you are and your leadership style, what's shifted for you? How have you grown as a leader? Um, how have I grown as a leader? My leadership journey is, um, something I talk about a lot. I'm very transparent about it. It's something I've struggled with. Um, I, I have a hard time understanding why my actions, what I say carries any more weight than anyone else. I feel like an equal player in the room mm. and I'm not an equal player in the room. And that's something I'm learning um, a lot about. My role is at the, the, 
the for- formal authority my role gives me mm-hmm. and how to use that. And that's really just coming from somebody who doesn't understand about formal. Like I never had formal authority. And even though I had entrepreneurial parents, I did not have parents who accomplished this level of mm-hmm. a business mm-hmm. um, with this level of demand of leadership, with this um, kind of intensity around who I am and what I do and what I say. So that's been interesting. I read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I have a therapist. I use EOS. EOS has been instrumental in my leadership journey that the implementer we've hired um, helps a lot with these kinds of issues. And it's very practical advice that's gotten me through. But I'll, I'll be frank, like my business grows exactly at the pace I can lead it. 100%. And I'm... my leadership isn't growing as fast as my vision, but it's getting there. We're getting there every single day. (laughs) We're doing it. And um, I have to pay a lot more attention to it than I ever thought I would. Mm. And I I think to your point of like your stepfather showed you that this was an option and you had an example. I suffer from lack of examples. Mm. I say that all the time to my EOS implementer, you know, he'll mention a, a way to a strategy or something and I'll go, could you point out somebody who's doing this that I could maybe look at, you know, somebody? And I just don't have that. I don't have that in my business community. I don't have it in my friend community. And I only really have it here at NARPM. Mm. So at NARPM, I meet people like yourself where, you know, you're talking and thinking about these things. Um, but it's not something that's in my everyday life. If I had it more present in my life, I'd probably be making bigger strides. Totally makes sense. I believe that environment tends to overwhelm all other factors, meaning the people that you're with, the expectations that are set for you simply by what seems obvious. And what seems obvious is what you've seen other people do. Hugely determinative for me and the relationships that I've been able to develop as both mentor relationships and network relationships have been a huge unlock for me. You mentioned NARPM here. This community is really open and really, I think, unusually. I make up that it's unusually open. I can't know for sure. I'm not going to plumbing conventions. I'm not going to other industry conventions. But it feels good and it gives me a lot of joy to have those relationships. When you think about the highlights for you running the business, what's really deeply satisfying to you? What really lights you up in the business day to day? Now it's the accomplishments of my team. Um, and that's a newer thing for me um, to really delight in that because I am doing um, what my coaches are encouraging me to do, which is letting go of the vine, letting go of some of these things that um, I've always kind of done or held on to. So the highlights for me are now when our leasing agent, Kristen, has a major accomplishment, right? She does something really cool or our business development manager um, puts together a really cool package and snags that big client or our senior portfolio advisor. She just came up with something recently. Um, she was doing something on renewals that really moved the needle. And I was like, that's great. You know, <laughs> like that's really cool. And those are really cool highlights to go, okay, like it's the baby starting to walk, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Almost like if it's a child, it's walking and it's going to run soon and I won't be able to catch it. Hopefully that would be the vision. It certainly feels like early innings for the industry. I'm really excited to be here working with this group of people. When you think about where you're looking to take your own business, tell me about the vision. Tell me about the the five-year plan and the deliverables and the experience of what you hope to be there, both for yourself, your team, and your clients. Yeah. 
Well, my vision has really crystallized in the last two years because, um, well, I bought out my partner. So now I have my solo vision is, is leading the company and it comes from our clients. So I'm so passionate about what our clients are doing with the money they're making from real estate, what it's enabling them to do for their families. And they need more services at the level we're providing them. So we're providing property management, maintenance and construction services. Um, we want to expand that. So we want to start offering syndications and turnkey inventory. So some some clients aren't able to get the the rough property, see the vision and sign up for that risk. We can take that away for them. We can do it, fill it with qualified tenants and sell it to them ready to go and hopefully continue to be managed by us. We would love to see helping investors with sales. So I feel like regular home buying realtors in our smaller, we're very much a tertiary market in North Central Pennsylvania, um, aren't our, consu- our investor consumers are not getting good enough services. And I'm working with these clients alongside their realtors as they're purchasing and divesting of property. And the realtors are not providing, they just don't have enough knowledge in mm-hmm any kind of rental housing to accurately guide these people. And so I think one focus could work with these investors to provide them far more valuable services in their transactions, Um, helping them get through these transactions with more value left on the table, um, less risk at the end of it. I mean, I see people buy properties with no leases and nobody ever asked a question or the leases say it's a thousand dollar deposit and we only got 800. And now there's a disagreement and the sales already happened. These are things that realtors, if they're advocating for their clients, should be doing. So the vision is a family of companies all in that north central market. I'm not trying to grow any bigger than that. I always say I don't like to drive, so I'm not trying to get in the car an awful lot. Um, and it's a really underserved market, but there's it's 60% rental housing there. Um, it's old housing. And and it's going to be a great location to be when the uh, the seawaters rise. North Central PA isn't going to be too bad. So I I think it's an important thing for our community to develop and build more quality housing through this family of companies. I want to empower our investors to do all the things they do with it. They provide, they keep people in nursing homes. They put kids through college. They save for retirement. I have missionaries who are funding their their mission trips and whatnot through their real estate. So I love it. I think people are doing amazing things with it. And the way the economy is changing, I've been talking for gosh, 15 years about how millennials are going to be very active in real estate later in life. And it's not going to look like their parents because we don't live in one house and pay the mortgage off in 30 years. We get bigger houses and smaller houses and we move houses and we take opportunities. And we see clients now who rent the housing from us. They're a tenant customer, but they have property managers with clients all over the country. Right. And I think that's something that we're going to see people doing. Real estate as an asset class is undeniably amazing but you don't have to live in it. I think too many people think you have to sleep in it every night. Mm. It's just a box. Talk to me about turnkey. Turnkey in some places can have a bad rap, particularly when the seller only has one of the core competencies. If you just understand construction or you just understand financing and you're outsourcing the rest, some you know you can find yourself in some certain situations that you're not able to get out of. Mm. In your experience, the turnkey opportunity for a property manager, and let's say somebody that doesn't understand construction and rehab. That's foreign to them. How would you describe and articulate the opportunity for PMs that are considering that, but not quite sure mechanically how to wade into that opportunity? Well, look at what you're doing now. Like What you're doing as a property manager is solving landlord problems. What makes a property worth less? Landlord problems, right? It's either got deferred maintenance, 
tenant compliance issues. It doesn't meet this definition. Attract and retain qualified tenants at market rent with no deferred maintenance. Mm. That's a statement we repeat like a mantra at One Focus. And that's the goal. We want a stabilized property. So what are you doing as a property manager? You're maintaining it, keeping it in good shape. You're placing, you're attracting and retaining qualified tenants and at market rent, right? And all the problems that come up with that. So when I look at a property, a distressed property, it usually needs some maintenance and construction to get it up to snuff. Then you need to place the qualified tenant and manage them appropriately. Okay. Well, that is nothing for us as property managers. Do it all day long. Do it in our sleep. We're creating amazing amounts of value for our customers when we do those activities. Some people just don't have the risk tolerance to do that. So why aren't we picking up some of this wonderful deal flow that's coming our way? We all get amazing deal flow. Pick up these deals as you can. You do the work, right? I'll do the maintenance work. I'll renovate it up. My company will place the tenant. And by the way, my clients who already hire me to do this and just need to place their cash somewhere are going to sign up for that all day long. And I think um, what's nice about this is that the client, I think, is a different level of trust because we're agreeing to stick with them through it. I'm not going to sell you the property and disappear into the night with my, my profit. No, I'm right here with you, man. And if that sink falls apart or that flooring was a terrible choice... I guess we're all going to see it together <laughs> at some point. Um, and I, and, but here's the thing. I don't worry about that part of it because I do that now for my clients. I, we pick flooring, we do renos, we place tenants, and we live with all that risk. And it goes well. We have a good program. Does that answer your question? It does. Yeah, it definitely does. You're, you're getting at the heart of it. So for the opportunity, the value proposition, for the value that you receive as a result of being able to offer those value-added services for your clients, how big of a bump is it? How much more value are you able to create by adding on those additional competencies? By doing all the value-add strategies on the property? Correct, as opposed to just doing residential property management. Well, I mean, I, you know, you could give a percentage, but it varies. You know, it, it depends on how you source the deal and how you run it and how long you hold it. Um, but there's all, I mean, I think all property managers know what's going on. They know where their clients are buying properties. They know what they're doing for them and where they're selling them. And um, I think there's plenty of value in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can be embarrassing how much value is in that sometimes. And and listen, sometimes you we all know this. We've all done deals that have gone sideways, gone sure. bad, you didn't get enough. So it's it should even out to it should even out to 20, 25%, I think, to make it worth your while. And if you're adding door count as you go, and by the way, having an easy disposal opportunity for your inventory. So this is part of my personal wealth building strategy as well, is buying properties. And then as my, it, like all investors, your focus changes, where you want to go changes and what you want to do. Well, my investment properties are super liquid because I have all of these buyers who love mm -hmm. my properties, who want to buy them off of me, who are begging for the opportunity to do it. So I think property managers don't always see what they do as such such value-add activity. They don't understand the money that's in it. They don't understand the value they're truly creating for owners. And I think that's something I got from my business school education, understanding value, valuing things, time value of money, all of that has taught me like, whoa, when I do these activities for these clients and improve the value of their property, my management fee doesn't start to touch that. I love that you just mentioned time value of money. Could you unpack what that means? Well, a dollar, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. And so you have to do, you know, gosh, now you're really kind of quizzing me on like discounted cash flow and stuff. But, you know, about understanding the property today, what is it? If I make an investment, what will it be worth? 
and the risk in that time, right? So I think we don't often think about the risk of projects. We think, okay, buy this, do this, get that. Okay, well, all those steps carry risk. So you have to assign a risk value to that. Um, and I just have a belief, belief we're at a point in the real estate cycle where these deals are coming up. We just have an opportunity coming that's very unusual for property managers. Uh, second time I'll mention it, but Scott Brady talked yesterday about the next five years going to be amazing. And it just has to do with where we are politically in our country, where we are economically, we stand to do really well. And I'd love to see property managers doing more of it on their own. Let's talk about some of the adjacent opportunities. We talked about turnkey. What about alternative asset classes, other types of management, HOA, short-term, commercial? Yeah. Have you dabbled in any of those? What do you take? What's your take and opinion? Dabbled, super valuable, not really an opportunity in North Central Pennsylvania. So our HOAs are incredibly small. We just don't have large HOAs. So they're 20 doors, been approached several times, can't come up with a way to financially make it work on such a small community. Um, we don't do manufactured housing or, or trailer parks. We don't do anything like that in our area. It's just, we don't have to. And I've decided the rules are different for those and I don't do it. Commercial, we absolutely work in, and we've done a lot of small main street, you know, uh, office retail type commercial. And that's very tra um, transferable into what we do as residential property managers. I did dabble. I worked for a REIT on a quarter million square foot warehouse facility mm. in our market. And that was very interesting. <laughs> I really learned a lot from doing that experience. And um, it's not, it, there's not a lot, enough opportunity truly where we are to make a go of that. I think the biggest need for us is the the six, small multifamily and single family property manager. But in other markets, there's a ton of opportunities. And if you're good at this and you're good at solving these problems and representing and advocating for clients, you should do it in any asset class you want to. What do you love about working in a tertiary market? Some folks would see tertiary and think, well, it must be a smaller opportunity. For you, what would you say in defense of growing something exciting in a tertiary market? Exactly. So I'm only excited by growing something exciting in a tertiary market. Um, I, always, I always wanted to be the big fish in the small pond. I really like that's kind of like how I grew up. You know, I, I was, you know, always a hyper achiever and I wasn't in a super big area. So it was easy to kind of stick out. Um, what I like about our market is it, it's kind of easy to get ahead. And, and I don't mean easy. I mean, we work really hard and we do the right things, but there's just not enough other people pushing the envelope that we stand out in a really great way. Um, and I feel like we get a lot more attention and get heard. Um, and it's, it's a little easier to kind of try things out. <laughs> it's a little easier to try things out when you don't have a lot of competition breathing down your neck. I don't know if I would have been bold enough to do this gold full assurance plan in a larger market with a ton of other property managers out there. I mean, I don't even know that like the one or two realtors who do this in my market even know that I do the gold plan, truly. I don't think they're even keyed in enough to know what's going on. So <laughs> that's my impression anyway. So, um, I like that I can kind of make these bold moves and get a chance to try them out. And if it falters, well, it falters. You know, it's not like that many people saw it, but um, I love the tertiary market. The challenges of it being smaller really in the hiring, both vendors and employees. It's just, I wish I had a bigger talent pool to pull from. You've mentioned your business education a couple of times, which, which is interesting to me. What are some of the most material benefits that you receive from that experience that you see benefiting you day to day? It goes back to what you were talking about, your environment, 
really guides you. And I went to a, a, a state school for my undergraduate education and I knew I wanted more. I knew when I heard what an MBA was, I was like, I want that. I want to do that. And I love the idea of it being a full-time experience, being really concentrated in business. Um, and when I was in my mid twenties, I thought, oh, you know, I want to do this. And I was managing properties. I just didn't see how I could do, do it full time. I didn't understand that. And I didn't want to do it part time. I didn't, I, that was not what I wanted. And I always said, if I won the lottery, I would go back to get my business degree full time. That would be the first thing I would do. And I got fired. <laughs> I got fired instead. Uh, it was my last large property management job. And, you know, it was housing crisis, all of this, you know, I was removed from the organization. And for about an hour, I was really depressed. And I talked to a girlfriend and she said, you always said, if you won the lottery, you go back to business school. And the tears turned off. I was researching how to take the GMAT, what programs I was interested in. And a year later, I went to Penn State and I was then surrounded by people who were ambitious, growing, having ideas, and just having those examples of people who were doing that emboldened me. Um, I was not always this outspoken. I was not always this convicted. And seeing and being surrounded by that, having all of that validation. So yes, it was the courses. Yes, it was the professors. Yes, it was all those experiences. But if I had to say the one thing, it was the 24-7, two-year-long, just kind of like intensive experience of being around people who were at my level doing the things I wanted to be doing. And it just emboldened me to where when I came out, I started this company. And I don't think I was on that path before. I, I really wasn't. I, I wasn't in the stay being a property manager path, but I didn't think I wanted to start a property management company. I really didn't think I wanted to stay in real estate. Um, but I learned while I was there, I absolutely wanted to be there. I love it. Do you still keep up with any of that network? Oh, yeah. I just, I, and they, usually when they want to be clients. <laughs> Usually when they see what I'm doing online and they go, hey, I got some money and uh, or it's not going well. So I advise some of my classmates from afar because they're not in my market. And then a couple have stuck around and I actually just met with one the other day and we're going to get him into some property. So, yeah, I keep up with those people. They're they're great people and they're doing the coolest things all over the world. I mean, it's really cool to have a network like that. Uh, 200, 300 people who I got to spend two really cool years with and now they're off leading the most amazing initiatives and projects and companies. It's super cool. Can you see the opportunity for your own mentorship paying it forward? You mean helping others? Mm -hmm. But why? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. Um, I mean, I serve on Women's Council, and that's something I'm very passionate about, and I'm very passionate about helping and developing my team. Um, I really like to show people an example of you can do whatever it is you want, and you can be as bold as you want. Just back it up. Like, do the work do the work and back it up. And um, I'm always trying to help women be just a bit more bold. Just tell, a little. tell me about the Women's Council and why that's significant to you. Oh, well, so it's so obvious to me and not to anybody else, it seems like, but it's very obvious to me that both women and other minorities need to have a bigger voice and we need to have more awareness as a group about the challenges that some of our subgroups have. It doesn't have to be about women. It doesn't have to be about ethnic minorities. That's just true about people. And one thing that's happening in the greater world is a greater awareness of these issues, more language to use for it. And listen, we're you know it's awkward figuring this out, but all of those are steps forward. And we take those steps forward in mindfulness and growing that awareness. It's so important to moving the needle for women and minorities in these groups. And what I want to have happen is 
women to see other women succeeding, women to feel confident joining conversations where maybe there isn't another woman already. I want them to know that that's all possible for them in professional platforms. So I, um, well, I was asked to join the committee and I've agreed to serve as vice chair next year. And Bess Wozniak are going, and I are going to be putting on a really cool year where we actually answer the question, why is Women's Council of Property Managers necessary? Why? Because I think that's a question a lot of people have. Why do we need this? Why is this important? And the truth is, it's because we're not talking about it enough. We're not. We're not talking about it enough. We're not. Um, and we're not using the same language to just acknowledge what goes on. We're not trying to make anybody feel bad. We're not trying to change the rules. We're just trying to say, hey, this is really how it is. And I think almost all people, when they're confronted with the fact of, hey, this is how it really is for this other person, they're willing to do whatever it takes to make them comfortable. That's how most people react. They're just unaware. Mentorship and advocacy is one of the most rewarding parts of what I get to do. It's the intangible. It's not on the balance sheet. I can't tell you exactly how it makes the business more money, but it's deeply fulfilling. And me being fulfilled is a big part of how the business grows and succeeds. My leadership has been impacted by a variety of conversations, but probably a small number that were really impactful, some specific moments where a word, a note of encouragement, some permission, somebody saying that they believed in me. And similarly, over time, I've come to realize as a leader, the power that I have. You mentioned earlier, struggling with just realizing the, the power of your own words. And there's been some great moments of reflection for me to realize that, wow, in that conversation, that person was really paying attention to what I was saying, that they may have been looking up to me. It wasn't said, it wasn't stated, but I had a disproportionate amount of impact just based on how that conversation went to own that, to reflect that, and to do as much good as I can because of that. Can you think back at any moments in your career where there were conversations that were particularly impactful, not because of their breadth or the directness of the feedback that you were getting, but just because it was something that really stuck with you and made a lasting impression? Hmm. In recent memory, it's a lot of the conversations that happen in our EOS quarterly and annual planning sessions. So those sessions where my team is very frank with feedback for each other, for us, when we're working with our implementer, when I love those sessions, those are like my favorite time in the world because we all we're talking about is the future and what we're going to do. And that's amazing. Everything's on the table. I love those. Um, those conversations I find myself reflecting on and having those moments where I think I told you, like I'm learning to calibrate the the power of my words. Mm -hmm. I'm learning that I'm a very transparent person. I love honesty. I love sharing absolutely everything, no matter what. I don't care if you're uncomfortable. Um, and that's hard for other people to deal with. Mm -hmm. So I reflect off and on, what did I say? How did I say it? I, I think maybe this person took this more strongly than I intended. Mm -hmm. It was a casual remark to mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. um, that I reflect on a lot. Um when I think about the people and the types of conversations, it's been so many people. And because I'm so frank with people, I find sometimes, you know, people are willing to be frank with me and I love it. Like I eat that up. Anytime I have real feedback, 
I love it. I'm a very self-aware person. I love to make adjustments off of it. And I'm very realistic about where I am in my development. I'll say, you know, like I told you before, my company is not able to grow until I grow, Mm -hmm. until I change, until I do these things. And uh, that's a reality I wish more people would talk about in entrepreneurship. I talk with a a, a friend here um, in this group uh, a lot. We're not local to each other. But one of the things I'm always saying in my messages to them is, why aren't people talking about this? Why aren't people talking about how hard this is or how much this requires of you? And I think this is something where women could take a bigger role in in just business. I think a lot of times it's men talking about it and they have a way of talking about things. They prioritize different feelings, mm-hmm. different – they talk about things more results-oriented. And mm-hmm. I think women are much more interested in the journey and the relationships that go on. Just two different things, not not, not one worse, better than the other, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it does leave a void out there for women like me who are building companies and going, this is really freaking hard. Why am I not hearing other people struggling with this? Am I alone? And when I get to talk to other business leaders, I find, no, this is absolutely what goes on, but we're not talking about it. We're not talking about how hard it is. I love what you're getting at there and you're making it so accessible, this diversity issue that you're bringing up. The way I think about it and the way that you framed it is it comes off like it's an issue specifically about women or minorities or whoever. It's a human issue that can be distilled down to people like me. Can I just see someone like me succeeding and winning so I can have as much conviction and possibility? That's it. That cross cuts across whatever sub-segment of the population that you'd like to highlight, and it's so impactful. I mentioned my stepdad. The fact that he was put, able to put me in that position just by doing, he didn't encourage me. He didn't tell me to do it, and he didn't tell me how great it was. I just saw it, and because of that level of proximity, it was like, well, if I can, it seems pretty interesting, so I might as well. And I was like hell-bent on it just through seeing it modeled. I love the way that you're framing that issue. As you think think about some of the broader opportunities for NARPM specifically to create opportunity for newer operators, for newer people coming into the industry, what comes to mind for you? We need to build on what you mentioned earlier, which was is this unusual openness about this group. Um, and I don't think it's true of property managers. I don't think it's true of other property management organizations. I think it's true of NARPM. NARPM has facilitated this really open, helpful welcoming vibe. And I think NARPM as a whole could capitalize on that to make sure our new members are getting in the fold really fast. And by the way, attracting new members through that because I was not, I mean, I was doing great property management services before my involvement in NARPM. I'm making money doing it now since NARPM. And since I've been able to meet all the wonderful affiliate members and use their services, Um, And I'm very passionate about that. I'm passionate about showing other property. Because if we can get more property managers making money and doing this better, they're just going to be doing the industry a favor. Every single time one of us succeeds and does something amazing, it helps the industry. And our industry needs help. What, we're 30% professionally managed, 70% self-managed? We could use a little overhaul of our image as an industry. And I think NARPM has a really cool asset in this. Such a helpful group. I just sent um, our director of operations out to Duluth, Minnesota to meet with Mike Schraper and his company. I shouldn't say that in case he doesn't want to do that for everybody, but he was so gracious to show us how he's running maintenance out there. I know I heard um, a woman in NARPM talk several years ago about an eviction protection guarantee, and I wrote her an email and called her up, and she talked to me for over an hour about how she came up with it, how she thought about it, what risks she considered, and I was able to come up with my own thing based Mm. on that conversation. 
who does that mm. in other industries? Mm. I mm. don't see mm. it. Mm. And something I've noticed in Pennsylvania and the Northeast is that we have a little bit of hesitancy to overcome, especially because we don't have these established chapters where mm. people can walk in and see it happening. We're, you know, us founding the Pennsylvania chapter are kind of sharing this with our friends and colleagues going, no, we're a truly open group. A rising tide lifts all ships. Like we do this together. And I think we're just facing a little bit of like cultural pushback. It's fine. We'll get through it. It's it's a very attractive value proposition we have here at NARPM. So we'll be recruiting people. But I think that's what NARPM needs to do is build on that and make sure that we continue to be welcoming. We never get too big for ourselves. We never get weird about stuff that we continue these benchmarking studies where we go, hey, we're going to get together and we're going to raise the industry. Mm. We're not trying to make more money to be greedy. We're just trying to raise the industry. We're trying to sharpen our tools. I love it. I'm so into it. Ending and wrapping with something personal. Talk to me a little bit about your journey in divorcing your ego and your identity from your success. The driven nature that I clearly sense in you and that I deeply relate to is such a tool for optimism, for accomplishment. And yet at times you can wonder, is it driving me or am I being driven by it? Does it have me or do I have it? What does that look like to create some space to be able to have relief as a person that is not just constantly fueled by accomplishing the next thing. When you said that, you said, share with me what that's been like. I'm like, the only thing I can share with you is a, a, a prologue. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> the before version, I feel like I'm very much in it. And so what that looks like for me is um, I do use the services of a therapist. Um, I'm big into meditation. Um self-care, things like this. And that has moved the needle for me in what you said, divorcing your ego and self-image from this professional success and accomplishment. Because I've had incredible professional success and accomplishment. And I do have an ego to go along with that. But I, I want so much more. I don't feel like you know, the, the best in the business. I feel like I'm going to be one day. You know, I have that kind of optimism. Um, and that's been a stumbling point, quite honestly, in my like leadership growth is like figuring out how to divorce that, how to separate that, how to be a good business person and a person, both of those things. Um, so yeah, I feel like it would be a little uh, preliminary to say that I've got it nailed. But to, to what I can do is share with your listeners that that's okay to be there. It's okay to be there. It's okay to say that that's what you're going through, that you're mm -hmm. figuring it out. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at how businesses grow, you know, you got to be a good property manager. You got to get good at processes and then you got to get good at people. I don't even know what comes after that. I'm still in the people part. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to figure out what comes next. Um, but I'm in the people part. I'm figuring out myself as people and how I'm going to lead the organization and how we're going to continue to attract and retain the top performers we need for the, because for, we're a service-based business and we've got amazing people. We just need more of them. Jen, I love your energy. Appreciate your candor. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Until next time. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.